Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 16 through the end of the chapter, through 42. So we've got a large chunk today. We're going to have a fairly quick pace here, but I'm sure we could make it through by God's grace. Matthew 10, verses 16 to 30 to 42. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover pew Bible in the chair in front of you. Go ahead and grab that and turn to page 863. It starts on page 863 and it moves to page 864. So... You can see that there. Chapter 10, when I say 10, 16, 10 is the big number. If this is your first time looking at a Bible, that's a chapter number. 16 is the small number. That's the verse number. We'll look at verse 16. Here's what Jesus says as he continues to give instructions to the 12 as he sends them out to, to preach the kingdom and do miracles all over the region of Israel. Jesus says this, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak for you'll be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore, don't be afraid of them. Since there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are more, worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me 
is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's a righteous person or because he is righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to, the, to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May his word dwell richly among us. Father, we thank you because we believe that when your word is read aloud, your voice is heard. That you speak through your words. And so we praise you for already addressing us with such a rich and long passage of instructions for us on how to be boldly working in the harvest field. Father, we ask for help because we are weak. We think about trials, we think about opposition, we think about persecution, we think about suffering for your name, and we tremble. We make excuses. Our mind starts to process and plan on how we can find ways to not have to submit to texts like these. So help us, we pray. Uproot the unbelief and the fear that you are not good and pour into us a faith and trust in you that whatever you call us to, you will always be good, even in suffering. So give us faith to believe your words here and we pray that you would do that because Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead and apart from him and his words, we can do nothing. So help us to not waste our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking about how people want to make a difference in the world. Last week, we talked about a few commencement speeches on changing the world. Everyone wants to make a difference in the world. And Christians believe, as we covered last week, that gospelizing, discipling through gospelizing, so discipling is influencing people towards something, so we're influencing people towards Christ. Discipling through gospelizing, that's preaching Christ and applying Christ to people, applying the gospel to people. Discipling through gospelizing is the way to change the world. We believe that, so we as Christians, we want to be courageous. We want to be bold. We want to speak the truth in love boldly for Christ. We are workers in his harvest field. Remember last week, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 35, when we read it, the, um, 35 to 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then we talked about how we received authority. All the 82 members of our church, last week when I read all the names, it was 79 members. Now we have 82 members who have been granted authority from Jesus to gospelize and to witness in his name. We are the workers for his harvest field. And then he tells us to go and to disciple. And we talked about that last week. Now the problem for us, almost always, the problem for our gospelizing and discipling, it can almost always be rooted down to one word, and that's fear. The reason we don't gospelize is for fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of opposition, fear of awkwardness, fear of persecution, fear of a strained relationship. We're paralyzed by fear. And so 
we, we, um, we might have true, maybe we even look at, look at the Bible and look at ourselves and say, am I even really a Christian? If Christians are to fearlessly or with fear, fearing God, go and disciple people and I'm not discipling people, why not? Maybe I'm not really a Christian. And that's possible. That's possible that we can be mistaken, that you can be mistaken about your Christianity. And so we're paralyzed by this fear. And so the question has to be asked, what will win at Bethany Baptist Church? What will win in your life? Fear of man or faith in Christ? Fear of your friend and neighbor or faith in Christ? You will choose whether you, whether you, cogniz- whether you consciously choose or not. Your life has chosen even the last few weeks, hasn't it? Whether you've chosen fear of man or faith in Christ. What will finally win is a question that we want to get help for today from this passage. Because like we covered in the last two texts, last two sermons on Matthew 9 and 10, Jesus went around, remember, he was preaching the gospel and he was reversing the curse. He was proclaiming the kingdom, which is reversing the curse. He reversed the curse of sickness, the the curse of death. He reversed the curse of blindness and the curse of demonization, remember? We talked about that two weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about how Jesus feels an overwhelming compassion for the crowds. So he had a strategy of compassionate care. And how does Jesus care when he sees people lost like sheep without a shepherd? What does he do? He tells us to do three things last week, right? Pray for workers. Secondly, receive the authority. And then go and disciple your neighbors and the nation's. That was last week. And we're continuing that idea because in in verse 16, we're really just continuing that last part about going and discipling your neighbors and the nations. Jesus continues his instruction here in our passage this morning. And he's commissioning the 12, go only among the Israelites, remember? Only among them and and preach preach the kingdom and do miracles, raise the dead, heal the sick, you know, uh, do all of that, bless your neighbors. If they receive you, they receive me. If they reject you, shake your, your foot, you know, shake your foot and, and go on your way. So what's the main goal of this passage this morning? The main goal of this passage is in verse 16, okay? So here's the main goal. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to give you different words in the text, but let's start with the main goal here in verse 16. Jesus gives us the context, and then he gives us the goal. Here's the context. I am sending you like sheep among who? Wolves. That doesn't sound nice. Jesus, do you love us? Yes. Do you want us to be safe? Yes, sort of. I'm going to send you like sheep among wolves. You don't send sheep among wolves. You don't send your, your um, children among pimps. And just be like, go hang out with them. Sex traffickers. You don't do that. You don't send them to a place where it will be dangerous. And yet Jesus is calling us what? Sheep. And he's sending us among what? Wolves. He has a plan here. But the point is, this is a scary predicament. Sheep among wolves. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, now that you have a shepherd, I still want to send you out as sheep among the wolves. That's what Jesus wants to do. And so, what, so what's the main goal, though? If that's the context, that's where his, his people are, both the 12 apostles here and even us today, what does he want of us? What's the main thing he wants of us here? Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innis, innocent or harmless as doves, innocent and harmless. So that's the main goal. I'm going to give it to you in different words. But the main goal here is be shrewd as serpents. In this context of wolves, in this dangerous, scary predicament we find ourselves in, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, I'm going to change those words because you don't know what that means, right? What does it mean to be shrewd as serpents? To be shrewd, well, as a serpent, 
Now, when we think of serpent as those who are saturated with the Bible, right? You're so saturated with this book that when you hear serpent, you think of who? Satan and the devil. Jesus is not telling you to be like Satan, okay? He's not saying be as shrewd as demons. That's not what he's saying. He's not telling you to be evil here. Serpents were a symbol of wisdom in that day, much like what would be the symbol of wisdom in our day? An owl, maybe, right? An owl with glasses on, right? The symbol of wisdom. So he's saying be as shrewd as an owl. Be as shrewd as a serpent. Be wise like a serpent. And um, the idea here is prudence. So I have a few words, thoughtful, be thoughtful like a serpent, like an owl, or be, be planning, be prepared, see the big picture like an owl. Here's my keyword that I want you to stay with today. I'm going to use this throughout the whole sermon. Be strategic, be strategic like a serpent. As you go out, you're gospelizing, it's hostile, there's wolves everywhere. You need to, Christian missionary, you need to, worker in the harvest, it's not just a harvest, there's wolves everywhere. You need to be strategic. You need to be wise. You need to not be so gullible that you're tricked and trapped unnecessarily. Be strategic. But not only strategic, let's get that second word. Be as shrewd or as strategic as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, one of our brothers here just shouted out harmless. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. And I'm just guessing here. I mean, there's different, there's disagreement here. Some people say to be as innocent as a dove means to be as um, pure as a dove. Pure in holiness. I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Some people say harmless, or some translations say harmless, or soft, soft like doves. You know, meek, not, not lashing back. That's true. But I think D.A. Carson actually gets it right, so I'm just going to quote him here. Here's what he says. He says, Doves are retiring but not astute. They are easily ensnared by the fowler. They're easily trapped. So he says this, Innocent, for example, what it means is not so cautious, not so suspicious, not so cunning that circumspection degenerates into fear of or elusiveness. Okay? So don't be so strategic that you never find yourself in trouble. Okay? Do you get that? So, so in other words, the word I'm using here is risk. You need to be as risky, as almost clueless as a dove, where you kind of wander into risks without even realizing it. So Jesus is actually giving us two words to keep you in here and not fall on either side of an error. You got to be strategic. Don't be so gullible. There's wolves out there. There's false teachers. You're going to get persecuted. You'll be opposed. Be strategic about it. Don't just unnecessarily start offending everyone. At the same time, don't be so strategic that you're not risky, that you over-strategize to the point where you never share the gospel. Only when it's so safe that they already believe the gospel. You only gospelize Christians. Don't be so strategic that you're not risky. So the call here is for strategic risk. Strategic risk. And I would say, figure out where you're most weak, and my, my weakness, maybe yours, is, is the risk part, not the strategy part. I could strategize all day, right, at home, and read a bunch of books. But then send me out with my neighbors or my friends or, or non-Christians. That's, that's where the risk needs to take place, right? So here's the main goal in my words. Courageously disciple your neighbors with strategic risk. And that's the key word, with strategic risk, so that you faithfully work in God's harvest. You're a worker in God's harvest. So you need to courageously disciple your neighbors with strategic risk so that, you're a so that you faithfully work in the harvest. Okay. So work in the harvest with strategic risk. Disciple your neighbors with strategic risk. 
take a risk strategically. There's three ways, or I'm sorry, four ways we do this. How are we going to live a life, a lifestyle of discipleship with strategic risk? Four ways, okay? Let me give them all four to you now, and then um, we'll, we'll, we'll look at them one at a time. The four ways you, you disciple with strategic risk is by expecting opposition. That's number one, expecting opposition. Number two, fearing what is truly fearful. Fearing what is truly fearful. Number three, publicly professing Christ. Publicly siding with Christ, if you like. Publicly professing Christ. And number four, sharing the reward with the receptive. Sharing the reward with the receptive. So how are we going to live a lifestyle of strategic risk in discipling? By expecting opposition. By fearing what is truly fearful. By publicly professing Christ. And by sharing the reward with the receptive. Do you need help with being bold for Christ? I need help. Christ is giving us help here. He's giving us four things to think about here that we might, um, that we, we might strategically engage with risk. So number one, expect opposition, verses 16 to 25, or verses 17 to 25. Expect opposition. Why should we expect opposition? Look at verse 17. Be aware of them. So there's expect it. Be aware. Be aware of opposition. Be aware of them. Beware of them. Why? Because they will what? What will they do in verse 17? They'll hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. They will attack you. They will oppose you. So why should you expect and beware? Why should you expect and beware of opposition? Why should you expect opposition? Because the government will oppose you. That's what verse 18 says, right? They're going to hand you over to the courts and they'll, they'll flog you and they'll, they'll persecute you. Look at verse 18. You'll even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus is giving instruction here beyond the historical point. Remember, this is a story. He sent it 12 to Israel in this story, right? Chapter 10. But even in it, he's giving instructions that go beyond this occasion. When, they're, when they are going to go to the nations, they're not going to be before governors and kings here. Not before Christ dies and rises, but they will after. And so this applies even today. But you will go before the government. The government will oppose you. Verse 19. But when, when they hand you over, here's some further instruction. When they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. So the government will oppose you. But don't, don't worry. Don't lose sleep over that. When you're in that moment and the government is oppressing you and they're calling you to trial, they're calling you to answer for your faith and what you're doing, don't worry about what you're going to say. Who's going to give it to you? The Holy Spirit will, right? The Father will through His Spirit. He will give you what to say. Expect opposition. The government will oppose you. Didn't that happen to Peter and John in Acts chapter 5? They were brought to the courts and they were flogged. Um, James was beheaded. In Acts chapter 11, we learn about James being beheaded by the government for believing in Jesus. Paul was even um, tried and testified before kings and governors, and maybe even, at least historically, uh, testified to the emperor himself, the Roman emperor. Now, the government opposes Christians because Satan runs the world. Or to use Revelation language, the first beast that comes up out of the sea runs the world. Let me read to you Revelation 13, verses 5 through Eight. The beast was given a mouth. This is the revelation glasses I want you to put on as you think about the government opposing. The beast, who looks like Satan, the dragon, was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, 
those who dwell in heaven, so saints. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name was not written in the book was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. So this first beast of Satan, of the dragon, he rules the world. Every tribe, people, language, and nation. He runs this world, every nation, even this nation, every nation. He runs the world and they will oppose you. So what do we do? We need to trust God to give us the words in pressure and move forward. Just a brief word of application to the government here. To the government, they need to recognize here that this is why as Christians, we, we teach and preach from the Bible, not from our own sense of safety. We teach religious liberty as a biblical conviction. That's good for all humans, not just Christians. Whenever governments try to get involved in religion and controlling the, the free thoughts of men and women and their consciences, they go astray. And the beast does that all the time in different ways. Amen. So the word to society, the word to the government is stop infringing on the religions of everyone and don't privilege one religion over another even secularism which is a religion don't privilege one over the other if the government is going to be fair and peaceful now that doesn't happen but that's god's call so if you work in the government you have any friends who are in government tell them that if they want to obey the lord so we need to realize that the government will oppose us but not just the government look at verses 21 and 22 who else will oppose us brother will betray brother to death and a father his child children will rise up against parents and have them put to death you'll be hated by everyone because of my name so who will oppose you your family will and everyone everyone will oppose you this is why children who are here today children why i tell you when i preach that you are to obey your parents but sometimes you're to disobey your parents when the parents tell you to disobey jesus there's only one lord who's never to be questioned and that's jesus and parents will betray children, children will betray parents, brother will betray brother, sister will betray sister. And it's not only within the family, what does verse 22 say? You'll hate it, be hated by who? Everyone, not just the government, not just your family, but everyone will oppose you. So there was a friend of mine who's a missionary in uh, Iran who baptized one of his um, members, and the husband took a picture of it. The husband wasn't Christian. Now, normally in Iran, when you baptize your members, you don't take pictures of it and you don't show anybody. Well, this husband was so intrigued with the church in a good way, and he was intrigued with the gospel. He started showing his family members. Well, his family members wanted to kill his wife. And so they had to flee to a country in Europe, and then they, they made calls there to, to try to kill the wife there. So they had to flee to another refugee site in Europe. And that's, that's today. I'm talking about today. That's currently their state. Because family will, will turn their back on family. They will because of Christ. That happens even among our church family. This calls for strategic risk and endurance. But you have taken risks. I want to encourage you. Some of you church members here, your, your children have rejected you because of Jesus. For some of you, your parents have rejected you because of Jesus. Or your siblings have. Or your cousins have. Because you have decided to follow Jesus at all costs. Brother, sister, let me encourage you. God knows the sacrifice you've made. Amen. He knows the risk you've taken. And he continually calls you to engage them with love and strategic risk. Until your last breath. That's what he calls you to do. 
That's what he does. So that our families oppose you. Who else opposes us? Um, or uh, there's another reason why we're opposed. Not because, not only because the government will oppose us and families. A third reason why we know we'll be opposed is because God has a purpose behind the opposition. Look at verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. Okay, so flee. Why might God want you to flee from town to town? What does He want to spread? The gospel, the gospel right? That's what He did in Acts. Right? The, the church in Antioch was planted because the church in Jerusalem was persecuted. They all fled. Or not all, but a lot of them fled. And they spread the gospel. They started getting to Samaria and the other most parts of the earth through persecution. God has a purpose. That's why it says in 23, For, I tru- for truly I tell you, you will, ha- you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. God has a plan. Christ is going to come again. But you're not going to go through all the towns that you need to go through and spread the gospel everywhere you can. You have to do that everywhere before Christ comes. So when you get persecuted, expect opposition from your friends, your family, the government. Because it's part of God's plan to spread the gospel until Christ returns. One last reason here why you need to expect opposition is because Jesus patterned the opposition. Jesus is the pattern of the opposition. Look at verses 20, what is it, verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, a slave is not above his master. So you're not above your master. That's step one. Step two, verse 25, it's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. So one, you're not above your, your teacher or master. Secondly, you're going you're gonna to become like your teacher or master. And then, and then here's Jesus' point at the end of verse 25. If they called the head of the household, Jesus, Jesus is saying, if they call me Beelzebul, Beelzebul, Baal is Lord. Beelzebul is like the Lord of the demons. If they call me Lord of the demons, how much more? the members of his household. If you're following me and they're calling me the leader of the demons, the Lord of the demons, what are they going to call you? A what? A demon. They're going to say you're demonized. You are influenced by demons and you are opposing the God, the true God. I mean, didn't the apostle Paul think that Stephen was opposing the true God when he, when he signed off and held the coats as they were stoning and killing Stephen for believing that Jesus is the Messiah? Didn't Paul think he was serving God? Yes. Didn't he think that maybe demons were tricking Stephen to believe that Jesus, who died on a cross, could actually be the Messiah of the world? That's ridiculous, Paul used to think. John 16, 2, Jesus says, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Have you, just, just think about the public discourse today on, um, on the LGBTQ issues. I don't want to get all into the details of that, but isn't it true that sometimes when people try to silence Christians and the Christian view, the biblical view on sexuality and gender, they think that they're actually on the side of love and righteousness? That you're actually following a demon. They might not, you, they might not say, I believe in a demon, but they believe you're on the wrong side of history. That you are following some demonic evil side by siding with the Bible. Brother or sister, don't be surprised. Expect opposition. If you don't expect it, of course you're going to be afraid to gospelize and disciple. Expect opposition. Christians, even in America, should expect opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12, one of the scariest verses in the Bible. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who will be persecuted? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. If I'm not being persecuted, maybe I don't desire to live a what? A godly life. That's a, that's a heart check, that verse. Everyone who desires to live for Jesus will be opposed. Or 
Everyone around you is getting saved, and you're just a walking revival. Right? That's the only way you're not going to be opposed. If you keep speaking Christ and loving people towards Christ, they're either following you and, and following Christ, praise God, revival, or they're opposing you. But if they're not getting saved around you, are they opposing you? Or is there just an indifference to you? If there's an indifference to you, you have to ask, what are you really standing for? Who are you really standing for? If everyone is okay with you, didn't Jesus say, woe to you when all men speak what? Speak well of you? Jesus is the pattern. He, they called him a demon, Lord of the demons. He patterned the opposition. If you're a follower of him, you will be opposed. Church family, let's go disciple together. Let's rejoice together when we, let's encourage each other when we get opposed. Let's pray for each other and support each other. You know, when John and James, when Peter and John got whipped and flogged, they went out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Let's rejoice together with each other when, when fellow believers in this church suffer for gospelizing, when they have a new awkward relationship because they took a risk. Let's celebrate that and encourage each other. If you're not a Christian, this may sound extremist to say, expect suffering. But guess what? Everyone chooses to suffer. Did you know that? Christian or non-Christian, they all choose to suffer. It just depends on what they choose to suffer for. So, for example... Dads will suffer broken relationships with their children to value work and leisure more, right? They'll choose to suffer. Many students will suffer bad grades because they value sleep or hanging out with friends more or social media more. Or they'll suffer a lack of social life because they value school more. Many suffer physically from anorexia because they value the appearance of skinny models. So you suffer. Or many suffer being overweight because they value food or work or sleep or relaxing more than exercise and self-control with eating. Many parents suffer hunger because they value the nourishment of their children in poor, poverty-stricken contexts. We are all willing to count the cost and suffer for something. Everyone does that. The question is, who or what are you suffering for? Christians suffer for Jesus. They suffer for loving their neighbors with Jesus. They suffer awkward relationships and opposition because they love Jesus. Christ warns us, praise God, that Christ meets us through people. That's the first, re- first way to embrace strategic risk is by expecting opposition. Secondly, by fearing what is truly fearful, verses 26 to 31. By fearing what is truly fearful. Verse 26 says, now Jesus gives um, a second thing. What are we to fear? Therefore, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of your family. Don't be afraid of your friends. Don't be afraid of government. Don't be afraid of trolls on social media. Don't be afraid of them. Since there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. In other words, there is a judgment day and everything will be exposed. And Christ the judge will call what was right and what was wrong. Reading on in verse 27, Jesus says, What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What I tell you, what you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. What does Jesus mean there? Who's he commissioning here? His 12 what? His 12 disciples or his 12 apostles. Now, remember, Jesus taught a lot of things in secret, didn't he, to his disciples? He explained the parables in secret. He talked about the cross in secret. He said, I'm telling you this in secret because I need to die first and rise from the dead. But once I die and rise and the Holy Spirit comes down on Pentecost, which we're celebrating next Sunday, by the way, 50 days after Easter, next Sunday, when the Spirit comes down on Pentecost, then go to the housetops and shout what I told you in secret. Remember sometimes Jesus tells people not to tell. He heals them and says, don't tell anyone. You're like, why? Because he has a mission to die first. But he says, what I tell you in secret, proclaim boldly on the housetops. 
on judgment day, people will say, you're a fool, Christian, for what you believe. You're wrong for what you say. Just take it and move on because on judgment day, God will, God will define who is right and who is wrong. So then Jesus applies it here in verse 28. So, so we, we fear the truly fearful by not fearing people. By the way, one more thing on not fearing people. When you fear people wrongly, you can't love them rightly. When you're afraid of them, you cannot love them because you're scared of them. But go back to, now go to verse 28. Here's the solution then in verse 28. Don't fear those who kill the body but aren't able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Oh, well, let's stop in verse 28. So Jesus is saying, don't fear these people. Who should you fear instead? Who can kill? It's a good guess, but let's see how the guess is. Who can, uh, let's go to verse 28 again. Who can kill both body and soul in hell? God. God. And one says Jesus can, or uh, someone said, Satan can kill the body, but Satan does not destroy us in hell. Why? What is Satan doing in hell? When when he gets thrown in the lake of fire, what's he going to be doing? He's going to be suffering too. He'll be destroyed. So get the pitchfork and the laughing Satan who's like poking you and stuff. That's not real. That's not true. The lake of fire is actually prepared for the demons. And then sinners who just re- who decided to rebel have to join them there forever. But here's what Jesus is saying. Don't be scared of people. Guess what? All they can do is what? All they can do is kill you. That's it. All they can do is end your, la- end your life. That's it. You're like, well, they can kill me though. I'm scared of dying. Jesus is saying, you know what's more scary than someone who can kill you? Someone who can kill your body and your soul. Being killed forever. Eternal damnation. Being crushed under the wrath of God for your sins, for your fear, for you rejecting Jesus and choosing fear of man over faith in Christ. That's scarier. So fear what is truly fearful. Not your neighbor, not your boss, not the government, not social media friends and foes. Fear God. He, will, he is the judge, and he will destroy sinners in hell. So, so why should we fear God? Because he's able to destroy us eternally. They could fire you from work. People can laugh at you. They can disassociate from you. They can put you in prison. They can mock you for sustained moments of time. They can make their friendships with you awkward. They can distort your reputation. They can lie about you. They can make your life uncomfortable. They can kill you. They can torture you. They can hurt your family. They can get your children. But that's not as scary as God. God is even scarier. God will, in hell, when God crushes people in hell, he withdraws all grace. Some people are like, man, when I get to hell, I'm going to be hanging out with my friends. We're going to have a good time. We're going to go over old memories. We're going to make new memories. No, you're not. You know why you have friends? Grace. You know why you love people? Grace. You know why you have sweet memories? Grace. You know why you have anything good? Because of God's grace. And in hell, in the lake of fire, there is no grace. You're isolated, alone, suffering, hating those around you as they hate you forever. There's nothing good in hell. Not every good thing you have here, Christian or non-Christian, is because of the goodness of God. And in hell, God takes all of that off and then crushes you with his damning righteousness for your sins. So Jesus says, why are you scared of your boss? Why are you scared to share the gospel with your neighbor? Because they might look at you funny and make it a little awkward? God can throw us in hell. 
He is the one we can fear. And if we fear God, then we can love people. See, that's the key. When you fear God, you don't have to be scared of people. You don't have to be scared of being criticized. You don't have to be scared of complaints or critics. You can love them even when they're mad at you. Because you're not scared of them. You're scared of who? You're scared of God. And now you're free to love them. Now you could really love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you're scared of them, you're trying to manipulate them to not hurt you. I'm scared of you, so let me find a way to not hurt for you not to hurt me so that my fear won't be realized. The awkward relationship, the criticism. You can't love them then because you're controlled by someone, not Jesus. So Jesus says, fear me, because if not, God is the one able to destroy body and soul in hell. If you're not a Christian, let me just say something here briefly to you. God does send people to hell. And everyone deserves to go to hell, including you. If you're not a Christian, you deserve to go to hell. If you are a Christian, you deserve to go to hell, right? Even for your life this week. We all deserve to go to hell because sinners deserve hell because God is righteous and we're sinful. But here's the good news, especially if you're not a Christian. But for Christians, this is good news for us all the same, isn't it? God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, for Jesus to be crushed under the wrath of God, to take our damnation so that if we repent from our sins and trust in Jesus who died for our sins and rose from the dead victorious over Satan's sin and death, defeating and paying for all of the sins that we deserve, we can be free. We can be forgiven. We can be given life. And so if you're not a Christian, God is inviting you this morning to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. You don't have to go to hell. Amen. Jesus already took hell on the cross for every sinner who will repent and believe. Just call on Jesus to save you and he'll save you. Turn from your sins and entrust yourself to him. So we fear God and not men because God is scarier. Secondly, look at verses 29 and 30. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But the hairs of your head have all been counted. So why else should we not fear people? Because God is in control. Does God control sparrows? Does God count the hairs on our head? Yes. For some of us, it's easier to count than others. Right? Still hard, though. But Jesus counts, God knows those. God knows and is in control of your specific events. Every specific awkward relationship you have, every opposition you feel, every criticism you get is, is consented by who? It's signed off by who? God. By God. So don't be scared. Just like Job, God has Satan on a leash. God has your opposition on a leash. He'll only let it go so far and no further. It's all given by his consent. So don't fear suffering. Don't fear opposition. Love the people around you. Be strategic and risky. Take a risk. You don't need to be scared. God's in control. And lastly, in verse 31 here, at least for this point. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than what? Many sparrows. So you're valuable. Why should you not be afraid? Why should you fear God and not people? Because God values you. God loves you. He cares about you. He values you. He knows you. He knows your pains. He knows your burdens. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. And he values you. He loves you. Amen. He cares for you. For you. And for us as a church family. So let us not be scared. We have the love of God. We have the fear of God. And we have the control of God in our lives that can help us to not be scared of people. So what does this mean for us Christians? Take a risk. Don't fear man more than God. Risk disapproval. Risk awkwardness. Risk speaking the truth in love. Whatever it, whatever it means. For church family, let's affirm each other. Let's encourage each other to fear God and not man. 
God overwhelms people with, his, with the fear of him so that we can love people. God wants us to be free, not only from the love of money, like we talked about earlier in the service. God wants us to be free from the fear of man. So let's do that. Thirdly, so the way we embrace strategic risk, number one, was to expect opposition. Number two, fear what is truly fearful, namely God and not man. Thirdly, publicly profess Christ. Verses 32 to 39, publicly profess Christ. If you didn't think this was convicting enough, here's where Jesus really puts the sword to us. He gives us two reasons to publicly identify with Christ. That means to acknowledge him and publicly align with him. Why? Two reasons. Number one, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also what? Acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others is scared scared to mention me and acknowledge me before others. Whoever denies me before others... I will also what? Deny him before my Father in heaven. Why should we publicly profess Christ? Because in judgment, it will come back around. If you acknowledge Christ in this world, Christ will acknowledge you on judgment day before the Father. If you deny Christ in this world, Christ will deny you before the Father, and you'll be stuck in your sins, and you'll be damned to hell on judgment day. So Christ is saying, therefore, it's going to come back around. So publicly identify with me. Now, some people might ask, well, Peter denied Christ how many times? Three times. Does that mean um, Jesus will deny Peter in heaven on judgment day? How many of you think Jesus is going to deny Peter on the final judgment day? How many of you think he's not going to deny Peter, but will acknowledge Peter on judgment day? Okay, you're right. So then is Jesus wrong here to say, if you deny me, I'll deny you? Jesus is not wrong. He's talking about ultimate denial. In other words, there's forgiveness for your sin of denying Christ. But if that's the pattern of your life and there is no repentance, there is no true faith in Jesus. And if there is no true faith in Jesus, and you say, well, okay, well, I could keep denying Christ because Peter denied Christ and he was okay, so I could deny Christ and it'll be okay. No, it won't be. Not if it's the pattern of your life. Not if there's not repentance. Did Peter repent? Yes. Did he, did he acknowledge Christ? Yes. yes, he suffered for Christ, right? He died, for Christ. he died for Christ. So it's not talking about if you just deny Christ one time or a few times. The pattern of your life and really the finality of your life Peter finally gave himself up for Jesus and acknowledged Christ and died for Jesus. And so Jesus will acknowledge Peter on Judgment Day. But if you deny Christ now and continually, Christ will deny you on Judgment Day. So publicly identify with Jesus because in Judgment Day it comes back around. And there is no other hope. There is no other name given in heaven among men by which we could be saved. It's only Christ. So you need to acknowledge him. Second reason why you acknowledge him, not just because it's coming in judgment, but because Christ came to divide. Why do you need to acknowledge Jesus? Because he came to divide people. Look at verse 34. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mom, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Some people say, that's not hard, Jesus. You don't have to come for that. No. That's only the first few years of marriage, probably. <laughs> Continuing, um, Jesus came to, to put a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So here, Jesus came to divide people. He came to divide them. This is quoting Micah 7, verses 6 and 7. In Micah 7, Micah 7 verse 6, it talks about how the nation is turned upside down and family is betraying family. It's not talking about Jesus coming to bring it. It's saying that the sin of the nation has brought it on Israel. So why is Jesus saying, I came to bring this, if it was the sin of the nation of Israel that brought it on Israel? Because it says, after it says that um, the sin of the nation will bring father against 
uh, son and daughter against uh, mom, in all that confusion, Micah says in the next verse, in, in Micah 7, verse 7, he says, um, I will look, but I will look, as for me, I will look to the Lord. And in that, well, when you look to the Lord in a, in a nation that's upside down, rejecting God, and you, you look to the Lord, and you receive the Lord, and you start living for the Lord, and they're all living backwards, guess what they're going to do when they look at you? They're going to attack you, right? You're going to be divided from them. So Jesus is going to say at the end of the day, yeah, the nation did that, but I have come, and, and when I come and people live for me, that backwards nation, that backwards world will turn against you as well. Even your own family members will. So... Jesus has come to bring a sword, to divide families. He has come to say, your family is not greater than me. Your mom is not greater than me. Your daughter, your son is not greater than me. Your spouse is not greater than me. They aren't. You have to choose between us. So verse 37, Jesus says, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not what? Not worthy of me. And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus over family. And in verse 38, whoever doesn't take up his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus over your own life. You die to yourself. Take up your cross. Anyone who finds his life, you try to find your life, you're going to what? You're going to lose it. But if you lose your life trusting Jesus and giving it all to Jesus, you're going to what? Find your life. You'll have eternal life here in this world and in the world to come. You will have eternal life. But it's Jesus over family. Jesus over your own life. Jesus doesn't only want to be praised. He wants to be preferred. Amen. He wants to be preferred over your family. First, yes, he wants to be the priority. My problem, and your problem, I'm guessing, is that I want Jesus and my family. I want Jesus and my job. I want Jesus and my hobby. I want Jesus and my power and influence. I want Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and. Jesus says, no. You can't have and. And means you want that and not me. It's not Jesus and family. It's not Jesus and your life. It's not Jesus and your church. It's Jesus only as your priority. Amen. And if you can't have that, then you're not worthy of Jesus. That's what he's saying. James and John left their dad and the fishing nets when Jesus called them to follow him. I had a grad student, uh, when I was doing a university evangelism, there was a grad student named Ben who I had been reading the Bible with for over a year discipled him on the story of the whole Bible and everything. And I've been reading with him for over a year. And eventually he got to the point, I remember we were in a restaurant and he says, PJ, I'm ready to follow Jesus. Because I'd always start our meeting with, hey, are you ready to follow Jesus yet? He's like, ah, oh, not yet. Okay, let's keep reading. Keep answering questions. And then next time I'd meet with him, are you ready to follow Jesus? Ah, oh, not yet. Okay, let's keep reading. So we were doing that for a year. He finally gets to the point where I said it and he said, yes. And I was like, wait, what? You know, I'm used to you saying no and we move on. So he said, yes. And I said, okay, great. What would you say after that? I said, now you need to get baptized. And he said, whoa, I'm not ready to get baptized. And I said, why not? Well, my parents back in my motherland, if they find out I got baptized, they would disown me. I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to get baptized. And I went right to Matthew 10. I just read, I said, Jesus actually addresses this. If you love father or mother more than me, you're not what? You're not worthy of me. I said, Ben, you're not ready to follow Jesus yet. You want Jesus and, and you can't have Jesus and. It's Jesus only. And so he had to walk away. James and John left their dad. The grad student, Ben, left Jesus. He had to choose. The world behind me, the cross before me, 
No turning back, no turning back. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. all. Not part of me, all. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches and told. I'd rather have Jesus, than it says later, than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. I'd rather have Jesus than to be a king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you. If you lose your life in following Jesus, you will find life. Ask any Christian here. They have suffered. They have made sacrifices. It hasn't been easy. But any true Christian here will tell you it was worth it, and they would do it again. And they would have done it earlier if they could. Ask them their story if you're not a Christian. Lose your life now. Find your eternal life in Jesus. If you're a Christian... Beware of nominal faith. It's easy in America and in Bethany Baptist Church to be a Jesus and Christian. And a Jesus and Christian is not a Christian. It's Jesus only. You try to be Jesus and you're not a Christian. Beware. You could even be a member on our membership role with your face in our membership directory and not be a Christian. Beware of Jesus and beware of nominal faith. If you're a true Christian, and you're not a member of a church, get baptized and join a local church. Publicly identify with Jesus and don't be ashamed of him. Church family, we have to play our part faithfully in affirming or denying people who want to come into membership in our church. And we did that last week. We'll continue to do that as a church family. Every church needs to exercise the keys of taking in or denying members of a church who publicly identify with Jesus. Jesus wants to acknowledge us before the Father. Jesus is not trying to be mean with this passage. He's trying to free us from the idols deep in our heart. He loves you. And he's saying, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I want to acknowledge you on judgment day before my father. I want to give you eternal life. So lose it. Lose your life and trust me. All right, so if we're going to courageously disciple our neighbors and the nations with strategic risk, we will do it by expecting opposition. We will do it by fearing what is truly fearful. We will do it by publicly professing Christ. And lastly, we will do it by sharing the reward. I love this one. By sharing the reward. It's not what you think when you read verses 40 to 42. So let me read it for you. Here's what Jesus says. The one who welcomes me, welcomes you, welcomes me. And the one who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. Any who welcomes a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who welcomes a righteous person, because he's righteous, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So some people might say, what's the application here? Well, welcome other Christians. And that's true. But Jesus is not giving this instruction to non-Christians to become Christian. He's giving this instruction to who? The 12 what? 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. He's saying, welcome. He's telling them, hey, guys, guess what? When you go disciple people, if they welcome you, they welcome me. And if they welcome me, they welcome the Father. So that's why my application here is, my point here for point four is share the reward. Because guess what? When I come to you as a disciple in Christ's name, if I come to you as a prophet of Christ in the name of Christ, if I come to you as a righteous person with the righteousness of Christ, and you receive me, who are you receiving? Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you're receiving who? The Father in heaven. You're receiving God. And guess what? If you give me a cup of cold water because I'm a disciple of Jesus, not because you like me, not because you're just trying to be nice, not just because it's the courteous thing in the culture to do, if you give me a cup of water because I'm a disciple of Jesus. The only reason you're doing it for that reason is because you're a disciple of Jesus. You're going to trust your life to Jesus. And when you do that, guess what we get to share? You will never lose your what? Your reward. You'll never lose your reward. 
So guess what, brothers and sisters? Here's the sweet thing about being a Christian in the midst of wolves. Every time we gospelize, we're giving someone an opportunity to share in the eternal reward. Amen. Isn't that sweet? You get to be part of other people experiencing the reward of God in heaven and the new earth forever. What a privilege. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are what? Few. few. And you get to be one of the few workers who gets to share the gospel. And if they receive you because of Christ, they will never lose their reward. You have shared the reward of Christ with them. What a privilege that in heaven, we will all sit back and look at our track record of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And you see all these people sharing the reward because of the risks you took. Because you weren't ashamed. Because you didn't hold back. Because you took strategic risk. People have heard about Jesus. People share in the reward. People get saved. And we celebrate on the new earth forever. That's so sweet that God would include us in this. So, so why do they share in the reward? Because they welcome the Father. Because they receive the reward of a righteous person. And their reward is secure. So brothers, sisters, just know that when we share, who do we represent? Christ. If they reject you, who do they reject? Christ. If they receive you, who do they receive? Christ. Okay, so get this. If they receive you, it's because they receive Christ. So don't get so puffed up like you're all that. Because you're not, right? So if people are like, man, PJ, good sermon or you know, whatever, and they try to encourage me, thank you for encouraging. I am encouraged by it. But it's important for me or for you just to not get puffed up. It's not about you. Why do they love you? Because they love Jesus. They're just disciples who love Jesus. Or what if they reject you? Then don't take it to what? Personal. They're rejecting you because they're rejecting Jesus. So don't be surprised and don't take it personally. Don't get bitter towards people who reject you. Love them anyways. They're supposed to reject you because you're speaking the truth in love. And they don't love the truth. Don't take it personal. Don't get mad at them. Start slandering them or gossiping about them or criticizing them back. Just take it with joy because you're identifying with Christ. Paul rejected Stephen. He didn't give him a cup of cold water. He took coats so that they could kill Stephen. But then when Paul repented, he changed course. And then he started to receive other Christians as well, didn't he? And Ananias. And so he got to share the reward because someone shared with him. Ananias did. And now Paul became a share of the reward. This is Genesis 12.3. Remember Jesus, God promised Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And through you, all the, nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is Genesis 12.3. If people love you because of Christ, they're going to be blessed. They're going to be saved. If they don't because of Christ, they will be cursed. Because you are the people of God. You are the temple of the living God. You are the dividing line in Bellflower, in Southeast LA. As you gospelize your neighbors, you're the dividing line. If they receive you, they're on Christ's side. If they reject you, they're not on Christ's side. If you're gospelizing faithfully with strategic risk. So church family, Christian, share the reward with other people. Christians, give each other a cup of cold water. Serve each other. Because guess what? There is no insignificant act of service we do to each other that will not be repaid in heaven. So look at the members list. Check the emails. Meet a need in our church. And just know that God sees it all and he counts it all. And many of you have done many secret good works that no one else in this church knows about. And God knows. And God loves and God will reward. There is no empty work you've done, no empty sacrifice you've made. If you're not a Christian, I want you to thank God that he's given you Christian friends. 
Because God's giving you Christian friends is God's favor on you temporarily to invite you to himself. God loves us. So to summarize, we are workers in the harvest. We disciple at strategic risk four ways. By what? Expecting opposition, fearing God, professing Christ publicly, and sharing the reward. We too easily fold though, right? We're too easily strategic and not risky enough. And so we have denied Christ. We have belittled Christ. We have ignored Christ in, in situations. And because of that, we have sinned against God. And for that, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be thrown in hell. But there's someone who never feared man above God. There's someone who publicly identified with the truth no matter what the cost and always spoke the truth in love. There's someone who did not only expect opposition, but he walked into it and he planned for it and he purposely didn't even answer Pilate's questions to get more opposition and suffering. Jesus Christ walked into the suffering, not just because he wanted suffering for man. He took on the suffering, the damnation that God poured out for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be emboldened to be witnesses for his kingdom. He was forsaken on the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was denied before the Father on the cross so that we won't be denied before the Father on judgment day. God cares for us, and Christ empowers us to take strategic risk. For a homework assignment, read Psalm 56. Look at how David and Jesus and Christians ought to pray when they're scared of man. Read Psalm 56. Here's my final call to you. I'm going to give you some simple application. One takeaway. Here it is. I want you, if you're a Christian, listen up, Christian. Listening? I want you to call or message one of your friends that you've been meaning to reach out to, to gospelize. I want you to write his name down or her name down. I want you to think about that person. I want you to call them or message them this week and say, hey, can we have coffee? Can we have a conversation about the most important thing in my life that I'd like to share with you? Or if they know you're a Christian, can I have a conversation with you about Jesus? Call and ask if you can meet and talk about Jesus. If you do something like that, if you take a a tangible strategic risk, if you don't do that, you might be overcome with fear and wonder if you ever truly do trust Jesus. But if you do, you might receive opposition or you might be welcomed and you might share Christ's reward with somebody else. Either way, as you lose your life, Jesus says, you will ultimately find it. So brother, sister, don't overthink it. Go, disciple people, gospelize, take a risk, and let us celebrate the, tr- the track record of strategic risks we take because our lives are a vapor. We're dead before we know it, and we will celebrate the work God does through us together forever. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to take strategic risk for Christ, for his kingdom, for love for neighbor, and for the unreached ethnic people groups of the world that will ripple out from our work here in Southeast LA. Cleanse our hearts and forgive us for our shame, for our sinful embarrassment, for our passive silence, for our weak excuse-making that has hindered us from loving others with gospel love and strategic risk. Help us as a church family and help us as individuals to be as strategic as serpents and as risky and walking straight to without overthinking it type doves as you send us into the plentiful harvest. And Lord, provide more workers in Los Angeles, 
and for the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.